Hello, friends. Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 40. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And welcome to the Skycast Network's uh, kind of true crime, weird, crazy yeah. fuck show. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Yeah, and we're going to talk about a sick son of a bitch today. Yeah. His name is Tony Costa. Yeah. And is there anything you want them to know before we do the little musical thing? Well, are they uh, in for a treat, honey? This this one, I, are the friend, are the friendly friends standing by? Yes, we're gonna need them. Okay, fuck. Provincetown, Massachusetts is a quiet little place best known for attracting the more eclectic types. A.K.A. weirdos. Especially in the late 1960s. Drug-taking weirdos. At the time, the whole town was swept up with the carefree attitude of the hippie era. Stinky. And it wasn't uncommon for a young woman to decide to leave without informing her family every now and then. Mostly their disappearances were chalked up to free spirits overcome with this spontaneous need to see the world. Not the best choices. The police assured the worried parents that their daughters would return home sooner or later. At the very least, they'd call when they ran out of money. Here's what you do if you don't want your children to, you know, ask you for money. Here we go. What I do is I just steal money from them randomly. What? I'll break into their piggy bank. I guess why would you do that? Why would they ever ask me for money again? When they think of me and money, they think of me taking money from them, not giving to them. Yikes, dude. You're welcome. Sorry. However... The 1968 disappearances of Patricia Walsh and her friend Marianne Wasaki were different. Right. Patricia was a school teacher, and her parents were adamant that she wasn't the type to run off without a word. Sad. They said she loved her job and would never just stop going to work. Right. And she hadn't even planned to stay in Provincetown for longer than the weekend. Something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So the police started asking around. And a single name kept popping up. Rosebud. Sorry. Tony Costa. The guy who we're doing the show on? With the two women nowhere to be found, the authorities worked to retrace their steps. And the more they looked, the more Tony's name jumped out at them. Shitlord extraordinaire. Tony was already well known to the local police. He had a nasty drug habit and occasionally served as an informant. Most of his friends called him Sire. Dumb. And considering the fact that most of them were rebellious teens he supplied with his homegrown marijuana, he probably was the closest thing to the king in their minds. Yeah, creepy dumb. The search for information brought investigators to an old, out-of-the-way cemetery in the next town over. What is this, Scooby-Doo? Uh-oh. Some locals in the area reported seeing Patricia Walsh's car parked on the dirt road towards the back of a graveyard. Okay. Unfortunately, the car was gone by the time authorities got there, and they left the area empty-handed. But something about the surrounding woods unnerved them. Could have been all the beady little squirrel eyes looking at them. They returned to the woods a few days later. Okay. This time with a large crew in tow, complete with a team of dogs and a helicopter flying overhead. And I guess in all the confusion, things got misplaced. And I don't really know how to say it other than just saying, I guess, one of the search and rescue dogs was flying the helicopter when it crashed. The authorities hoped to find some sign as to the whereabouts of the missing women and stumbled on an unexpected horror. But not to our listeners who tuned in for the true crime stuff, so they know it's probably murder. Sorry. Roughly 10 feet from the edge of the road, a shallow grave had been dug and then hastily recovered. Underneath the dirt was a green duffel bag, and beneath that was the dissected body of a young woman. She had been cut into eight pieces, and most of her organs had been removed. But this body 
was in the advanced stages of decomposition, meaning it definitely wasn't Patricia Walsh or Marianne Wysocki. It was someone else entirely, but who? As the investigation heated up, Tony Costa skipped town, but not before checking out of the same guest house that Patricia and Marianne last occupied. The police searched his room after his departure and found a number of suspicious items left behind, including a turtleneck that still carried the faint scent of Patricia Walsh's perfume. So that's what we're in for, the story of Tony the Dickhead. Yep, Tony the Dickhead. All right. Yep, so grab your coffee, uh, get settled, and uh, let's start. Fuck a duck. (laughs) And now the story of grotesque dipshit Tony Costa. Born on August 2nd, 1944, Anton Charles Costa, who went by Tony, was just a baby when his father drowned while serving in the United States Navy. When he was seven years old, he told his mother, Cecilia, that a man was coming into his bedroom at night. When asked to describe this man, he pointed to a picture of his deceased father, someone he was just way too young to fully remember. What is it, little Tony? Are you having a bad dream? I see dead people. Okay. And one of them says he doesn't want you to fuck Bob the Butcher anymore. Wait, what? Was it just a child's imagination, or was the young boy getting some father-son time from beyond the grave? Mm. Who knows? I bet it was the former. In November of 1961, Tony was just 17 years old, but he had already started showing signs of a twisted mind. Yeah, Mrs. Costa, we're quite concerned with your son. Oh, what's the problem? Well, let me just say there are many, but here's one in particular I'd like you to see. Okay. Oh. Yep, that is a disturbing picture that your son drew of his teacher, Mrs. Grady. What's this here? That's the devil's penis. Oh. Now, the most disturbing part is that she found this in her mailbox at her house. Oh, dear. And actually, the most disturbing part, if you turn it, yeah, if you turn it over. Oh, my. Yeah, we do not encourage our students to handle deliver pictures that they drew of their teachers that say die bitch die on the back. I'll talk to him about it. See, up until this point, he'd been living with his mother in Boston. One night, he got the idea to break into an apartment just down the street. Inside, a teenage girl named Donna Welsh, she was alone and asleep in her bed. Tony dragged her out of bed and proceeded to tie her up. Luckily, Donna's parents came home before he could do much else, and he was quickly arrested by Somerville police. He told the officers that Donna had given him a key and asked him to sneak into her bedroom. He claimed it was a plan that they had together and that she was happy to see him, but he started to have second thoughts, so he told her he wanted to leave. As he started to sneak his way back out of the house, Donna began screaming, so he ran. Hmm. When asked if he tied the girl up, he readily admitted to it and claimed it was a game they played every now and then. Tony told them that he tied her up on multiple occasions and would often pull her underwear down to look at her. But he said this game was consensual and she'd never screamed like that before. Hmm. Eh, The police didn't believe him and Tony was charged with assault and battery as well as breaking and entering with the intent to commit a felony. He was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to a year in a juvenile correction facility. But when his mother begged for leniency, really, the judge ultimately relented. He was given a one year suspended sentence instead, followed by three years of probation. Okay, so what what is it with these moms? (laughs) I don't I don't my baby. I know it's very frustrating. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, having not been put in that situation myself, I don't know how I'd handle it, but seems to me I'd be like, what the fuck are you thinking? I think it's for a lot of people, it's natural to fight for family regardless of what they did. It's like, that's got to be bullshit because yeah. my <clears> blood <throat> doesn't do that shit. Not my baby. Right. All right. So trouble with the law aside, 
Tony already had a terrifying reputation for tying girls up against their will. In one incident, Tony's mother went next door to visit with a friend, and when she came back, she discovered that her son had tied up one of the neighbors. That was a really tough fetish to explain to anyone. <sighs> like, hey, if some person comes to, you know, they're in a relationship mm-hmm. for the first time, here's what I want to do to you. <laughs> yeah, Don't look at me weird. No shaming, please. Yikes. Uh, I really want right, to treat you like a boat. I want to treat you like a sailboat. I want to moor you in my dock. <laughs> I'm going to sail you so good. I'm going to show you the box knot. Oh, my God. <laughs> but most alarming of all was his habit of bringing girls back to his room. And once they were there, he would press a pillow over their faces and attempt to smother them. Fucking yikes. None of these attempts were successful, but they were a huge red flag. Yeah. Y- you think? Yeah, maybe. And then there were the missing pets. Oh, but, oh. Every once in a while, one of the neighborhood dogs or cats would go missing. Now, nobody could prove anything, but many people suspected that Tony was the one to blame. He certainly had no problem killing wild animals like squirrels or the occasional raccoon, which he would then use to perfect his taxidermy techniques. Oh, boy. Yeah. Tony, come here, son. What is it, Mom? Go. I want you to know I see taxidermy as an honored profession. Okay. But I am a bit concerned on your fixation on posing these animals with big boners. Don't censor my art. Well, if your art could have less to do with murdering the neighbor's cats and posing them with giant boners. You just don't understand. I don't want to. I wonder if there's examples of pictures somewhere. It really wouldn't be. This is a squirrel. Right. Well, it's not, Tony. That's not. That's Anymore, buddy. At one point, it was a squirrel. Now it's smoking a cigarette. Don't do <laughs> right. that to animals. It really, really wouldn't be much of a leap to assume that he might have moved on to larger animals at some point. Tony, are you taxiderming a moose in your fucking bedroom? Get off my back, Mom! Go! Eventually, after Tony's increasingly vile behavior had basically pissed off the entire community, his mother sent him to live with a relative in Provincetown. <laughs> you deal with him. She had hoped the fresh start would benefit her troubled son and calm his dark impulses. Okay, nope. okay, again. Nope. Why? Why do moms do this? I don't know. Seriously, we've covered a few stories where moms they, they think you know a change of scenery are going to fix yeah. my boy. If he just gets some fresh, uh, you know, he coastal just needs air. air. Yeah. God if damn. we just move him to Ohio, we're it'll just be fine. Either that, or they don't want to deal with him, and they ship him off to like an aunt or something. Right. They're like, you know, your husband will straighten him out. Right. I don't understand. Uh, these delusional mothers. Anywho. They don't either. Tony was a senior in high school by then, and he struggled to connect with his peers. So in a town where everybody knew everybody else, Tony Costa was a total stranger, and he appeared to kind of like it that way. Hmm. Despite his social struggles, Tony eventually managed to find a girlfriend. This guy got a girlfriend? Fuck. Their relationship, however, wasn't exactly normal. So Here's what I want you to be, a schooner. Okay? <laughs> you to... You're my sweet little dinghy. You're my dinghy. So Tony, then at the time 18, found himself a 13-year-old girl. What? Yeah. Oh. It was weird even for the time. This guy just checks off all the boxes. Yeah. Just the worst. So in spite of her young age and the fact that she was still only in the eighth grade, the couple would eventually marry when she turned 14. What the fuck? I know. Fucking crazy. So what year is this? Fucking 18? 1968 at this point. Oh, is it 68? I think it's 68 at this point. All right. Nope. Actually, it was 1961. All right. Still so, fucking modern times. Fucking That's, weird. All right. Now, given what we know about Tony Costa, it makes sense that he would seek out a partner that was significantly younger. After all, children are 
pretty easily to manipulate, even as teenagers. Inexperience and submissiveness go hand in hand, and those were the traits he prized most in his lovers. He was the kind of guy that wanted complete control. He wanted them to admire him, admire his intelligence, and call him sire, as if Provincetown was his personal kingdom and they were his loyal subjects. The fact that he was considered good-looking certainly helped. Women were attracted to him once they worked their way into his world, and he had a certain superficial charm that made it easy to keep them hanging on his every word. Tony went on to have three children with his child bride over the years. As he grew into his 20s, he seemed to hang out with teenagers almost exclusively. But that kind of makes sense because Tony was the local weed grower mm-hmm. and he kept his friends well supplied. That's how you do it. Tony's marijuana patch was located in the woods behind the old Truro, C- Truro Cemetery. Fuck, I know a bunch of Tonys except for right. not this Tony. I'm just saying. I'm just, it's theorized by some that he used the pot as a way to look cool to a bunch of kids fresh out of high school. Yeah, I remember that guy. Well, it, and you know what? It's pretty easy to break the ice with a bowl of the devil's lettuce. Right. After all. You summon me, Lord Satan. Yeah, Cecil, I got word that people are calling this here marijuana the devil's lettuce. Yes, my lord. I think people get me all wrong. My lord. Yeah, I'm into people suffering. Right. Marijuana's fun. Okay. I'd say the lettuce that I actually endorse is kale. Oh. That shit sucks. Who's the cool guy with the weeds? Who's the cool guy with the bowl? Can I have some <clears throat> weeds, cool guy? Thanks, brah. However, a year or two down the line, that hidden patch of ground would hold unspeakable secrets. And those secrets would soon spill out onto the freshly fallen snow right under the watchful eye of Detective Bernie Flynn and State Trooper Tom Gunnery. It all started in January of 1968 when Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wasaki vanished without a trace. Both women were in their 20s and neither fit the profile of the usual flew-the-coop sort of disappearances the police normally saw. Provincetown was a quiet place. Women disappeared now and then, of course, but they didn't normally come to any sort of violent end. They almost always turned up sooner or later, having left in search of adventure or simply to get out and see something other than the small town in which they lived. On Monday, January 27th, Patricia was expected to return to her classroom of elementary students. The students filed in and sat at their desks as usual, but their teacher never showed up. When she also failed to come in the next day, the principal grew concerned and called Pat's father, who was listed as her emergency contact. Unfortunately, he hadn't seen her either. Even more alarming was the fact that all of his phone calls to her went unanswered. He began to call around to her friends, but none of them could tell him much. One friend stated that Patricia had mentioned her plans to go to Provincetown with Marianne for the weekend, but that was all she knew. Growing more and more concerned, Patricia's father called Martha, Marianne's mother. She confirmed that the girls planned to visit Cape Cod, but that she hadn't heard from her daughter since the previous Friday. Fighting against the rising fear, he called the police department to check if they had been in an accident. The dispatcher informed him that there were no reports of a crash involving a car matching the description of his daughter's light blue Volkswagen. With no other option available to the worried father, he called the police to report her as missing. At first, the authorities assumed the women had simply decided to extend their vacation without telling anyone, but their families were adamant that that wasn't the case. The girls had checked into a guest house just for the weekend, and their families insisted they would have shown up to work on Monday morning. 
Patricia was a teacher, after all, and teachers are usually dependable types, especially when they love their jobs as much as she did. Right. The police started asking around town. They were able to find the guest house where the girls stayed, and they spoke with the owner, a woman named Patricia Morton. Mrs. Morton confirmed that the girls had taken a room there, but they had already checked out. She mentioned that they had plans to meet a friend on Saturday, but she hadn't caught a name. As they studied the guest logs, something jumped out at the investigators. There was another person staying at the guest house at that time. Can you guess who it was? Uh, oh, the guy in the name of the title of the show? <laughs> it was Tony Costa. Fucking guy. The name sent up immediate red flags. Dipshit. During their search, a number of witnesses kept bringing up the same name. Several witnesses even said they saw the women with Tony shortly before their disappearance. Hmm. Mrs. Morton told them that the women seemed quite friendly with Tony. In fact, on the day they checked out he actually stuck a note on their door asking for a ride. A search of the girl's room turned up nothing noteworthy. But then came the tip-off about Patricia's car. Several residents in the neighboring town of Truro had called in to report seeing a light blue Volkswagen parked in a secluded, out-of-the-way spot behind a rundown cemetery. It was a small town, the kind of place where anything out of the ordinary is immediately noticed and an abandoned car with Rhode Island license plates. That's front page shit. Definitely counted as out of the ordinary. A local officer was dispatched to investigate and found the vehicle. There was a note on the windshield that said the car had broken down and its owner would return soon. Unaware of the missing women, the officer thought nothing of it and went ba about his business. But back in Provincetown, several witnesses had claimed to see Tony driving the car. Mm -hmm. When they talked to a local mechanic, the police learned that Tony had called him to ask how much it would cost to have Patricia's car repainted. Yikes. Yeah, great, Otto. What can I do for you? Hey, Tony, okay. How much to repaint your girlfriend's car? Let me look. What do you mean, how much to get blood out of seats? Head removal. Chasing their lead, the investigators took a ride out to the old cemetery, hoping that the missing women's car might still be parked there. But there was no such luck. All they found were a set of tire tracks in the snow and an empty gas can. Still, there was something about the surrounding area that made them pause. And it wasn't just the hidden patch of marijuana nearby. The energy was strange there. And it had to mean something. They could feel it. The next day, they returned to that area, hoping that the third time would be the charm. And it was as they searched for signs of something out of place, Officer James Cook came across something deeply troubling. There was a handful of documents scattered around and half buried in the snow. He gathered the crumpled scraps of paper and found a vehicle registration card and a few insurance receipts, all in Patricia Walsh's name. Energized by this new lead, the police redoubled their efforts. They launched a full-scale search of the woods, hoping to find any trace of Patricia or Marianne. As they combed the woods, state trooper Tom Gunnery noticed a large depression in the ground. Some kind of green cloth was sticking up through the snow. As he bent down to get a better look, he was met with the unmistakable smell of decomposition. Carefully, he scraped the snow aside and tugged the green cloth out of the shallow hole. It turned out to be an empty duffel bag, but upon closer inspection, he saw what appeared to be blood on one of the straps. Officer Gunnery 
sat the devil back aside, and then continued to dig in the hole. Soon, he found what appeared to be a piece of white bone. When he tried to pull it free from the earth, he uncovered the human foot it was still attached to. Yikes. He continued digging, pulling one body part after another out of the shallow grave. The victim, a young woman, had been cut up into eight sections. Right. Yeah. He removed each one as carefully as he could until all that remained in the hole was a clear plastic bag with what appeared to be hair in it. Yeah. He brought the bag up to get a better look and found himself face to face with the victim's severed head. Oh, fuck. She had been beaten to the point of disfigurement. Her face was swollen beyond recognition and her nose had more or less been smashed completely flat. Damn. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. Hey, kids, it's Fermi the First Mammal. Hey, Fermi. I just want you to know that life can be really scary. It sure can be. But it can also be really great. What do you mean, Fermi? I mean, you can always have a coffee. I don't like coffee. What do you mean you don't like coffee? Just not a coffee person. But these remains were far too decomposed to belong to Patricia or Marianne. Hmm. Somehow, in their search for the missing women, they managed to stumble upon a woman they hadn't thought to look for. Right. The autopsy identified her as a teenager named Susan Perry. She'd been missing since the previous Labor Day. Like Patricia and Marianne, Susan had ties to Tony Costa who was known to refer to her as Kid Chick, or his Kid Chick, at the time of her disappearance. Wow. That's kind of gross. Yeah. Tony told everyone that she had hitched a ride to Mexico with a couple of fellow drug enthusiasts. Drug, drug enthusiasts. Imagine that being your label in life. Well, that's it, that's it's, like, it's a that's the term that was in the article. What, what are you? I'm well, a I'm drug an, I'm an engineer. Uh, I studied it. <laughs> but what are you really? I'm a drug enthusiast. Really, when it, you break it down. That's oh God! Why I'm here? So she hitched this ride to Mexico with a couple of fellow drug enthusiasts. <laughs> Most people found this story plausible. Right. Now the horrible truth was coming to light at this point. Aside from being dismembered, her body was horrifically mutilated in many other ways. She had been pelvically eviscerated, and her uterus and ovaries had been removed. Her heart and liver were missing, and her breasts had been amputated. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, friendly friends? Yep. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. Now, Fermi, the first mammal, and I don't agree about coffee. You fucking son of a... But that doesn't mean we can't be friends. So you like coffee. I really don't. It's burned bean juice. A pair of blood-soaked panties with the word Thursday embroidered on them were shoved into her chest cavity. Oh, what? Five months had passed since Susan's parents first reported their daughter's disappearance, and thanks to the accidental discovery... They were finally able to lay her body to rest in a proper burial. I hope they didn't hear those details. Well, they did. The closure came with the heartbreaking cost. The knowledge that Susan hadn't just been murdered. She'd been brutalized in the sickest of ways. Meanwhile, the girls the police hoped to find remained missing. Well, at least for a while. Clearly, the police had some big questions for Tony Costa. Yeah. Unfortunately, although somewhat predictably, they didn't get the chance to ask them because Tony had skipped town when he caught wind of the search for the missing women and for him. With his old room at the guest house now vacated, the police searched the place for evidence. Miss Morton complained that he'd left a few things behind, like a hairdryer and a few articles of clothing. 
Hmm. At first glance, the room didn't seem to have much to offer, but when Marianne's boyfriend was shown the items that had been left there, he recognized Marianne's hairdryer. It was hers. Likewise, Patricia's boyfriend recognized the turtleneck sweater. It still carried the faint scent of her perfume, a smell that he knew extremely well. Upon opening the closet, they also found a coil of rope with strange red stains on it. Hmm. Things were looking more and more grim by the second. The hunt continued, even in Tony's absence. Along the way, detectives picked up more information about Tony's lifestyle and personality. So he did a lot of odd jobs around the community, like carpentry, handiwork, that sort of thing. He also had a love for taxidermy. Yeah. And often roamed to the back roads at night, hoping to scoop up some fresh roadkill. There's nothing wrong with taxidermy, but you know, to add to his stuff kind collection, of right? Mental state right, into well, it, it does turn things up into the craziness. Well, you know, it's a hobby, crazy world. I'm sure it's a hobby, right? Like, like any other, it doesn't. It's not exactly a hobby that makes a person seems less likely to be a serial killer. <laughs> That's though. true. It's. I mean. We're you all know, thinking it, except yikes. for those of you that, you know, I mean, know a taxidermist. Nothing, you know he's a little off. I got it's nothing, cool. nothing, you know, about taxidermy, but uh, Tony. It, it does seem creepy. It's like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I, I, I gut things and try and make them look natural after I, they have nothing natural. Okay, in them. okay side note. Mm-hmm. Have you ever taken a look? I was curious about our listeners, too. Have you guys ever looked at uh, bad taxidermy? Bad taxidermy. Oh, God. Some of the stuff yes. is just terrible. When you, earlier, when you said a cigarette coming out of its mouth, I was like, you've seen what I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> and, like the eyes cross-eyed oh, and like, sideways and Yeah, shit. some of them are just bad. It's pretty awesome. Well, it's like, well, that's not a cougar, but it used to be a cougar. <laughs> Tony also had a nasty drug problem, which the police were already aware of, since he occasionally served as an informant, like I had shared before. And he's just winning in all the levels yeah his increasingly erratic behavior led to a breakdown in his marriage around this time and he was regularly seen with other women interestingly he seemed to conceal his darker side in certain situations though nobody in their right mind would call a serial murdering drug addict babysitter material (laughs) but when he got a babysitting job for when he was watching seven-year-old liza rodman and her sister the girls never suspected the violence he was capable of yeah it's not on the ad for like you need a babysitter that's a you know middle-aged dude come on hello busy parents tony costa here happy to tell you about the new middle-aged man care babysitting services children love to play with my chest hair just call five not serial murderer. Well, he's not middle-aged yet. He's like in his 20s yeah, right now. Yeah, I right? think so, yeah. yeah. Still. In her experience, Tony was a pretty fun guy. He never even so much as raised his voice at them. Sure, you know, there might have been moments where he acted kind of strange or seemed convinced that a nameless someone was out to get him. But being paranoid and slightly shady doesn't automatically mean you like to butcher women in your spare time. Right, but add the taxidermy to it as a hobby and add (laughs) some red flags. Liza wouldn't realize that she had been babysat by a monster until much later in her life. Eventually, Tony decided to return to Provincetown. He took himself to the police station, intent on pleading his innocence. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that didn't go well. When he was because he wasn't innocent, right? When he was asked <laughs> what, what happened to Marianne and Patricia, Tony claimed that one of the girls was seeking an abortion, and their plan was to go to Montreal afterward with the intent of starting a new life in Canada. Mm-hmm. Patricia, well, she left her car with him, which he was free to use as he wished. 
However, that was just one explanation he provided. Oh, dear. Through the course of the questioning, it became very clear that Tony was desperately trying to cover his tracks and his story changed often. I love how many criminals walk into a police station like, this is my first time being questioned. I bet this is their first time questioning a I criminal. Know. Let's just, I bet I can get him with the, like, the very basic shit. They're like, oh, I'm serious, officer. These aren't even my pants. Yeah, but you're wearing... They're my cousin's pants. How did these get on me? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, the police were suspicious and with understandably good reason. Obviously, it was hard to believe that Patricia would give her car to a man she barely knew. Right. When they mentioned this, he backtracked and claimed that she hadn't just given him the car. Uh, he actually bought it for $900. Oh, wow. Fuck yeah. But when they asked him if he'd paid her the money, he told them that he hadn't, which oh. also seemed unlikely. So he became a good, like, oh, all right, that's right. good. You paid her money. That helped her to get to Montreal. Right. You didn't pay her? Fuck it, you're a dick again. Here well, we it, go. We keep going back. Yeah, well, it seemed unlikely because any sane person would expect to have their money before turning over the goods. You'd think so. Realizing that he'd talked himself into a corner, Tony said that the women bought drugs from him the previous summer, and they weren't able to pay up at the time, so Patricia gave him the car instead, and they called it even. Okay. That was a problem for the officers, too, because he had already claimed that he never even met the girls before. Yet, suddenly... Not only did he know them, but he'd known them for quite a while. And now he was claiming that Patricia apparently knew and liked him well enough to give him the only means of transportation she and Marianne had to get back home to Rhode Island. <laughs> Logic. He then presented a bill of sale from his pocket. This police officer right now I feels know. like fucking Perry Mason. He's like, this is so easy. He's I'm like, the you best were seriously making time. this way too easy. This is the fucking... There were two signatures on this uh, bill of sale, Patricia's and Tony's. He swore that they agreed he would pay them the following day, and then they drove him to Truro and parked the car in the clearing. Oop. He claimed that Patricia was going to use the car for one more week, and then they would drop it off in the same spot so Tony could pick it up. With his drug car? Right. He gets a drug car. Okay. Yeah. Well, none of, none of it made any sense, and much of his story contradicted itself. But with no physical proof of the women dead or alive, the authorities had no power to hold Tony in custody. Right. He remained the prime suspect, however, and was placed under su surveillance. Surely it was only a matter of time before they had him behind bars. Right. Then, to the shock of the authorities, Tony produced a telegram that he claimed was sent by the missing girls, indicating they were both alive and well. Yikes. At the end, it was signed, quote, Love, Patricia, and Marianne. <laughs> Much like the bill of sale he had shown them. At the police station, this new piece of evidence just seemed far too convenient, yeah, you think? Yeah. The detective told Tony to have the girls contact the police department themselves. I mean, if they were truly unharmed, that is. And then he just gives them a phone call. Hi! Hi. I know! <laughs> <laughs> is this Tony? No! No, this is Patricia! This is Patricia! I'm in Canada! If they were sending him letters, there was no reason they couldn't just make a phone call. Right. And it would make all of Tony's problems go away almost immediately. However, mm -hmm. no such contact was ever made. Shocking. Because they're dead. Yeah. That was likely what the police had expected. And yet a short time later, another telegram showed up. This time it was sent to the address belonging to Tony's mother. And just like the first telegram, this one also ended with signatures of both Patricia and Marianne. Yikes. At this point, they were fairly certain these messages weren't coming from the missing women. Right. But who were they coming from? 
Aside from the fact that they were sent from New York, they didn't have much to go on, so the police department sent someone to investigate further. The conclusion of that investigation is probably not going to come as much of a shock. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, both the telegrams were sent by none other than Tony Costa himself. Oh, fuck me, Ryan. So the digging continued, both into Tony's personal life and in the woods, with their focus on the specific location where Tony liked to bring girls late at night so he could impress them with his marijuana plants Mm -hmm. and do a bunch of drugs. That is the quantity people prefer. Given its secluded location, it was the perfect place to hurt somebody or dump a body. Once all the violence had finally come to its inevitable conclusion, this garden would hold more than its share of secrets. All around these woods, death had soaked deep into the soil, and it wasn't limited to the nearby cemetery. It was like a physical presence, the policeman said, something that chilled to the bone far more than the frigid wind and snow ever could. During their investigation, a young girl familiar with Tony's garden told police a troubling story of the night he took her into the woods. 17-year-old Marsha Mooney bore a striking resemblance to Patricia Walsh. Despite the investigator's assurances that she wasn't in any kind of trouble, the girl seemed extremely nervous, but they could sense that it wasn't the police she was afraid of. It was Tony Costa. According to Marsha, Tony decided to bring a bow and arrow along on this particular trip to the garden. After helping him tend to his crop of marijuana, he told her he wanted to shoot a couple arrows into the woods. Marsha was cold and and wanted to escape the chilly wind, so she told him... She'd meet him back at the car. She turned to head back the way they came and made it about halfway to the car when an arrow hit her in the back. Fuck. Marsha was lucky, though. She was wearing a heavy coat that day, which absorbed some of the force and likely saved her life. She said it felt like something had hit her pretty hard, but didn't notice the wound in her back until later that night when she was getting ready for bed. Okay. What? Yeah, I know. I read this. Who the hell gets shot in the back with an arrow and doesn't even notice they're injured? That, I mean, what the fuck kind of drugs were they doing out there? That's a good question. <clears throat> also, nice coat. Right. Sounds like a good coat. Maybe. I mean, jeez. Marsha's mother rushed her to the hospital, who had the young girl file a report with the police, even though she assumed it was just an accident. Hmm. However, the next time she went into the woods with Tony. Yeah, there was a next time. The incident started to seem decidedly less accidental. Wait a minute. He's shooting these arrows at me. I get it. He's an ass. Yeah, I think it was an accident. She had two friends with her the next time, Hmm. and Tony was driving a different car. One of her friends opened the glove compartment and found a small handgun. As they talked, it became clear that Marsha was terrified of Tony. She swore that she didn't believe he was involved in the disappearances of Patricia and Marianne, but her fear was palpable. If he ever caught wind of her conversation with the police, there was a very real possibility that she might be the next young woman to vanish without a trace. That means she's had lots of conversations with him, and she's like, oh, he's unhinged. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah I, but like, she... I like the weed, though. Yikes. After some encouragement, she led authorities to Tony's favorite spot in the woods. It was a section of the area that the police hadn't yet searched, and Trooper Gunnery could immediately sense that same ominous energy he'd felt before. Something was out there, just waiting to be uncovered, but he couldn't go digging around just yet. It was a chilly morning, and it was overcast, and the small search party was all but frozen stiff thanks to an icy downpour. 
They would just have to wait for the weather to improve to begin their search. The officers led Marsha back to the cruiser to warm up, and she gave them a little more information about the monster they were dealing with. She was friends with Tony's estranged wife, the young Avis Costa. Remember the, the mm-hmm. child wife? Yeah, yeah. 14. And Avis to- had told her several unsettling stories about their sex life, or more specifically, about Tony's unusual and borderline dangerous appetites in the bedroom. In one instance, Avis almost died after Tony encouraged her to take a sedative called chloral hydrate, which was typically used to calm patients before major surgeries. Other times, he would put a plastic bag over her head until she lost consciousness. Dude. And then he would act out his dark fantasies on his defenseless partner. Getting a little freaky in the bedroom with another consenting adult is one thing, but the police felt that this was something entirely different. As the investigation continued, the police found more disheartening evidence to suggest the girls had been murdered. Tony told them he left Patricia's car in Burlington, Vermont. And when the police went to check it out, they found the Volkswagen right where he told them it would be. The Rhode Island license plates had been taken off, but it was definitely the missing woman's car. When they tested the interior, they found traces of blood on the steering wheel, the passenger seatbelt and door, and in the back seat. When they checked the nearby boarding house Tony had occupied while in Vermont, they found even more damning evidence. Tony had left several articles of clothing in the closet, including a corduroy jacket and a shirt. Both items had long brown hairs on them and were heavily stained with blood. And there was a note in the, in the inside pocket that said, I killed all these people. Right, and at this where point. I them. And there was a map. <laughs> drew. With a giant X. He was a genius. Jeez. The rope they found back at Miss Morton's guest house in Provincetown also appeared to have small traces of blood, along with a few human hairs that were just too long to belong to their suspect. The police started sifting through all their reports of missing women thinking that they may have overlooked more victims. It was at this time they came across a report for Sydney Lee Monson, a petite teenager that had been missing for almost nine months. She was last seen by her sister who watched her get into a car with Tony and then never saw her again. Everywhere they turned, Tony Costa's name kept popping up. At this point, law enforcement was certain the women were dead, and Tony clearly had something to do with it, but there wasn't much they could do until they found the bodies. The weather was much improved by March 4th, 1969, and assisted by a crew of volunteers, the investigators combed the area that Marcia had led them to. For this particular excursion, they enlisted the help of a hunting dog named Cookie. Okay, now this was... <laughs> Favorite part of the story, right? Yeah. Oh my God, this was so Cookie. funny. I I read a couple of different renditions of this, and I fucking busted, my, busted up throughout this whole portion. So here's, here's Cookie's story. <laughs> Despite the confidence of its handler, who was sure his dog would sniff out anything of importance, the hound was mostly interested in making sure that every tree in the immediate vicinity was claimed as his own. Cookie. (laughs) The confused officers watched Cookie race around, hiking his leg up at every opportunity, and prayed that he just wouldn't mistake one of their legs for a sapling. Cookie loves pissing on trees, yeah. Cookie loves pissing on trees, baby. But his useless as his nose appeared to be, the dog did manage to be helpful, if only by accident. Cookie got a stupid nose for a dog, it's a stupid nose. 
As he ran around in the woods, all willy-nilly, he got tripped up by something sticking out of the ground and went sprawling and let out a, a loud yelp. It got the attention of the search party who found a shallow hole under a layer of ice and snow. An officer reached inside and pulled out a brown handbag covered in dirt. They looked inside and found Patricia Walsh's driver's license, a student ID card from Rhode Island College, a membership card for the Providence Teachers Union, and a ticket stub for a movie she'd recently gone to see. Have people heard of fire? I mean, sorry, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, just, I'm there, not trying to help the criminals here, but I mean, have you heard of this fire? This guy was not the, he was not he, a his mastermind. Criminal, his criminal mind has got to be real low. Yeah. yeah. There was also a small change purse containing roughly $4.65 and a couple of tubes of makeup. Although the likelihood of finding her alive looked even smaller now, it was an encouraging find. If her purse was buried there, mm. her body would likely be somewhere nearby. They kept looking and found another handbag buried at the base of a tree. This one was Marianne's. Mm. Inside, they found her identification card, which had actually had been torn in half. The purse also contained her birth certificate, a bus schedule, and a Providence library card. They also found a note with her mother's contact information, along with instructions to contact her in the event of an emergency. And that part was made me sad yeah, when I was learning about that. For sure. The last item they pulled out of the purse was a receipt from Mrs. Morton's guest house, which showed that the women had reserved their room for Friday and Saturday. The next day was March 5th. Trooper Gunnery and the rest of the search crew returned to the woods once more, hoping that today would be the day they could bring the missing women home, if only to give their families something to bury. While walking his assigned section of the woods, Trooper Gunnery noticed a large broken tree limb. Now, it wasn't the kind of break that happened under a forceful wind. It was more like the kind of damage done by hanging something extremely heavy on the branch that couldn't hold its weight. Upon further investigation, he indeed found a length of rope tied to the branch. The rope appeared to have red marks on it, similar to the one that he found in Tony's closet back at the guest house. At the base of the tree, Trooper Gunnery found a plastic pill bottle, a glass vial, and a razor blade. So he started kicking away at the snow and the debris around the area, but stopped when something shiny caught his eye, and it was actually an earring. But as he continued poking around, he noticed a patch of the earth that appeared to have been disturbed recently. So he asked for a shovel and began the hard work of breaking through the frozen ground. When the hole was close to three feet deep, that's a lot of digging. Yeah. He tossed the shovel aside and began to dig with his bare hands as the soil was a bit more soft. Eventually, his hard work paid off, but the reward was bittersweet at best. Something sharp poked through his glove, and once he got a good look at it, he realized he'd uncovered a turquoise ring, and it was still attached to the hand that wore it. Detective Flynn then jumped into the hole to assist him. Together, they found a clump of human hair. Oh, now he wants to help Dave. Right. Fucking guy. But when they tried to pull up on the hair, it came away from the scalp completely. Okay, now this is another moment. I'm going to stop for a second. I need to point something out here. What the fuck happened to preserving a crime scene? Did they not do that during this period of time? I guess not. I mean, two men are digging around with their bare hands in a hole. 
yanking on body parts. It just seems hokey. Well, they didn't have me. a lot of DNA stuff to do at the it time. Shouldn't, so. I, but it shouldn't matter. You don't yeah. just yank on. You know, how, what happens if when they pulled that away and it, the, the scalp pulled away from the skull, what happens if it, it damages, you know, the cause of death? Right. That sort of thing. True. I don't know. It just seemed hokey to me. But yeah. anyways, carefully, Flynn brushed more dirt from the remains and eventually lifted Marianne Wasaki's severed head out of the makeshift grave. <sighs> Trooper Gunnery pressed on and it didn't take long to find her torso. The skin had been peeled back, exposing the muscle and bone of her chest. Oh boy, human beings are terrible. I think it's obvious at this point animals are also terrible. No, animals are cute and sweet. Oh yeah? Fuck coffee. <laughs> As shocking as the site was, they didn't have much time to dwell on it because someone had found a second grave several hundred feet away. They laid Marianne's remains out in the snow and rushed to the next spot. Yeah, just kind of tossed her aside. There they found more body parts stacked in the shallow hole. They pulled them out one by one. First, the lower half of Patricia Walsh's body followed by her legs. They had what appeared to be long knife cuts from her upper thigh all the way down to her toes. Her torso was the next to be pulled from the hole with her head still attached. Underneath that was another pelvis, which had been severed at the bikini lines. In each layer of gore, they found articles of clothing, a blood-soaked sweater, a pair of slacks, and a pair of bell-bottom jeans. But the gruesome work still wasn't done. Under another two feet of dirt, they found yet another body. This one severely decomposed. She had been dismembered in a similar manner, although her face was no longer recognizable. The police were fairly certain they just recovered the body of Sidney Monson, the girl Tony Costa once called his kid chick. At long last, they finally had enough evidence to arrest him, but first, they'd have to find him. Tony was laying low and living with his half-brother, Vincent Bonafiri. Vincent had recently moved back to Boston and was working at a local liquor store when the police rolled up to ask Vincent about his brother's whereabouts. He told them that he hadn't seen Tony in over a week, and the last he'd heard, he was still in Provincetown. The detectives didn't buy it for a second. They decided to check Vincent's new apartment just in case Tony happened to be there. Tony actually looked out the window at the exact moment the officers pulled up. Another wonderful coincidence. Oh, what a dummy. Yeah, dumbass move. He had considered running at first, but then got a better idea. He started down the stairs and met the two officers in the hallway. They stopped to ask him his name, and he nonchalantly told them that his name was Vincent Bonafiri, and he smiled. Unbeknownst to him, though, the officers had just spoken to Vincent at the liquor store. (laughs) Weird. He was immediately placed under arrest and taken into custody. Tony was now facing four first-degree murder charges for the deaths of Susan Perry, Sidney Monson, Marianne Wysocki, and Patricia Walsh. By the time they got him into an interrogation room, the station was already swarming with reporters. He seemed to be enjoying his newfound attention, although he stubbornly refused to talk to the police. Meanwhile, his victims were taken to Nickerson Funeral Home, where autopsies were performed on what was left of them. Marianne had been shot twice in the head and had been cut into five sections. There was a deep gash running the length of her chest, and some of her skin had been peeled away. She had deep cuts on her legs and feet, 
and there was evidence of sexual assault, but the medical examiners couldn't be sure if it occurred before or after her death. The pathologist noted in the report that the woman hadn't simply been murdered. She had been absolutely mauled. Yikes. The other women had suffered a similar treatment. Patricia had been shot in the back of the neck. The bullet severed her carotid artery and lodged itself in her left cheek. Like her friend Patricia, she had a deep gash running from her sternum to her pelvis, and the skin had been peeled back. Jesus. There were a number of other deep cuts and gashes in her torso, suggesting the killer was in a frenzied state. Her lower half was even worse. She had seven-inch-long slash marks zigzagging in different directions down the back of her thighs and calves. Dude, what is this guy doing? She also had been assaulted in a similar manner to Marianne. The other body that was found beneath Patricia was fingerprinted since it was impossible to identify her visually given the advanced state of decay. The detective's hunch turned out to be correct. They had indeed recovered the remains of 19-year-old Sydney Monson. She had been cut into four portions, but her right leg was still missing. Her left leg had been sawed off at the femoral shaft, or somewhere like in the middle of her mid-thigh, right. and her kidneys were missing. What? Right. Selling, well, I don't know. Aside from that, though, it was hard to determine much about the way she died or had been disposed of. I mean, after all, she'd likely been buried out in the woods for at least nine months, if not longer. By the time she was finally found, her remains were just far too decomposed. As news of Tony's arrest began to spread, District Attorney Edmund Dennis saw his time to shine. Okay, this portion of the story I find appalling. I mean, of course, beyond what was already, beyond what was already. so <laughs> Tony, Tony Costa's activities are fucking horrid. They're gruesome. This district attorney just, okay, get that. I'm just going to tell the story. Okay, just get this. Story. So he held a press conference to inform the ravenous sea of journalists about the new development in the case, but his account wasn't exactly accurate. In fact, it was quite embellished with each gory detail designed to whip up a media frenzy. He told the crowd that the killer had removed each victim's heart and the organs were still missing from the graves. He went on to say that the bodies had been cut into as many parts as there were joints, with evidence suggesting the killer's tool of choice was an axe or a meat cleaver. Right. The district attorney went on to claim that some sections of the remains had been covered with marks that could only be made by human teeth, suggesting that these parts had been bitten and chewed by the murderer. Huh. However, none of this was true. Right. I mean, talk about damaging a case right out of the gates. Yeah. We got everybody scared, and well, so he wanted attention for himself. Is that what? Like, I, look at me, it, I'm doing this really important case. I guess it's what it seems like. It huh. just, I don't know. As I read this case more and more, I found things where I was like, "Oh, dude, what are you doing? Right. Climbing in the hole, digging with your hands. Oh, dude, what are you doing? Right. Lying to the public. You're the <sighs> DA. What are you doing? Uh, well. So Trooper Gunnery and Detective Flynn had spoken to the medical examiner personally, and they knew for a fact that the district attorney was pulling these details out of thin air. Hmm. But once the media got their hands on a good story, it was like a runaway train. Hmm. Regardless of the actual facts, Tony would soon be known as the Cape Cod Vampire, mm. and there was nothing the investigators could do about it. 
the vampires do this kind yeah, of stuff? I, I, don't, I, do I, I don't. I don't know. For that was the nickname, and I think it was just because he. They said the guy said that he chewed on people. Right. I don't know. The vampires, they're like, I, and I, I took his heart out. I don't know. Really, that's a vampire thing. Okay. So, so none of them were too excited about the idea of publicly correcting him in front of every major newspaper in the state. Probably should have. I mean, still, they rightfully worried that his exaggerations would cost them the case. After spending weeks digging around in the snow, nobody wants to see Tony get away with his atrocities for the sake of the district attorney's moment in the spotlight. Right. This case also caught the attention of author Kurt Vonnegut. Really? His daughter, Edith, had once been friends with the killer. And under the right circumstances, she very well could have been his next victim. When Tony was arrested, Kurt wrote an article comparing the vicious killer to Jack the Ripper. Hmm. Now, that title probably wasn't uh, entirely accurate either, but it certainly seemed more fitting than the Cape Cod vampire. Right. After Tony's imprisonment and subsequent conviction in May of 1970, Kurt Vonnegut would send him the occasional letter and would usually see, receive one in return. There was something about Tony that fascinated the author. He wrote letters to Tony Costa. Yeah, he wow. did. Okay. So, and it was fascinating to Kurt. Maybe he was simply drawn to darkness or... Maybe he was trying to figure out how such a barbaric monster could fool young women into feeling safe in his presence, right. including his own daughter. Kurt Vonnegut once said, quote, The message of his letters to me was that a person as intent on being virtuous as he could not possibly have hurt a fly, and he believed that to be true. End quote. Even after killing people. Right. <laughs> so while in prison, Tony Costa did some book writing of his own. The novel, which he called Resurrection, gave his account of what happened to each of the women. In the book, he described being present for the murders of Patricia and Marianne, but blamed the deaths on a friend he called Corey. <laughs> According to him, the four this of them... This is where them, O.J. got his first dimmer. I'm so funny that you brought that up. Okay. According to him, the four of them had taken some drugs, and at some point, Corey shot both of the women. Fucking Tony, Corey. Tony, of course... Uh, you know being a buddy yeah he managed he managed to wrestle the weapon away oh okay but it was too late patricia died almost instantly marianne survived the initial shot but tony claimed there was no way to save her so he used his knife to put an end to her obvious <laughs> suffering and then help the bodies uh, bury the bodies afterwards just like a dog so add for, as for Cindy Monson and Susan Perry, he claimed that both women suffered fatal drug overdoses. After they died, it was Corey who hacked their bodies to pieces and buried them in the woods, Corey. with Tony completely unaware until well after the fact. Hmm. Corey. <laughs> Although he wrote about Corey as if he were a real flesh and blood person, there's no evidence that Tony had help when it came to his gruesome deeds. There wasn't even a Corey in the whole damn county. It's possible that Corey was something akin to an alter ego, the part of his psyche where all his monstrosities hibernated until the perfect opportunity presented itself. Or maybe Corey was just a scapegoat he made up after the fact. I mean, if you remember the O.J. Simpson case... Yes. Or, if you've ever read his book, you probably know that he employed a similar tactic by claiming the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were committed by a friend named Charlie. Yeah, Charlie, dude. Yeah. I, tr I tried to stop Charlie. While OJ simply happened to be present at the time. Okay, Tony. Mm -hmm. Okay, OJ. Yeah, so both stories carry the same vibe and seem equally 
Hard to believe. Charlie. Four years after his life sentence was handed down, Tony took his own life by hanging himself in his prison cell. Okay. Although some people believe his suicide was an admission of guilt, one fact remains clear. In spite of all of his charms, Tony Costa was a dangerous dipshit. And what do our dipshits think about today's dipshit? So Tony Costa, the vampire, vampire, what is he? The vampire of Cape Cape Cod. Cape Cod vampire. No. No. We're not calling him that. Mm Mm-mm. Uh, Tony the baloney. <laughs> he was just dumb. I mean, he was violent and he was horrendous and he was just depraved, but yeah. he was fucking stupid. He did this all by himself, just cutting people up. In the, Seems in the like woods. it. Yeah. I mean, is that where he was doing it? Was in the woods? Yeah, there? Was, like that, well, that yeah, was there his was a little workshop. Yeah, it was a location that he would take young girls to. But the marijuana plants were the, that the was, draw, right? Yeah, that was the attraction. And he would take them out there to, I guess, impress them and force them to call him Sire. Sire. Weird. He was doing that to the kids before, too. Yeah, everyone had to call him Sire. So that guy's He thought of that. himself as king. Yeah, there was no... Did you ever find any IQ on the guy? Or no, like how no, he did in huh? school? Or no, there wasn't... Was he on the chess team? There wasn't really a lot about his uh, schooling except for how, you know, antisocial he was. Right. and. You know, killing animals, potentially taxidermy grossness. With the cigarettes in its mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's give him a let's give him a score. Yeah. Uh, brutality. Mm-hmm. We gave him a four point two five. So yeah, he was pretty brutal. You know, there, yeah. it's really hard to tell what happened. Um, we we obviously know what happened post mortem. You know, he chopped him up yeah. and he threw him in a hole. The, the the hard part is deciphering what he did to them while they were still alive. The and the, knife marks and it looked like some of that shit in like the yeah, the yeah. mouth and ugh, fuck. Well, at this, you know, basically what I gauged that on was what he did to the bodies, but also the one girl who survived. What he did to her in the woods. I mean, he literally just shot her in the back with an arrow. Yeah. And got lucky because the girl got lucky. Because uh, it didn't go all the way through her. Yeah, but then she went back to fucking yeah, to well, be there again. She's dumb. But <laughs> I'm judging his brutality by that act and then how the bodies ended up. So who knows? Um, there was sexual assault, mm-hmm. but it's hard to tell whether it was before or after. Uh, and the fact that he chopped them all into neat little, you know, snack sizes and Fuck, stuck them yeah, in a... You said portions one time. I was like, Jesus. Yikes. All uh-huh. right. Uh, so Cruelty. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of cruelty as well. You gave him a 4.25. I did because of what he did to his wife. And that's another indication to what he did to these women. Now, his child wife mm-hmm. um, went through a lot of abuse. I mean, she he drugged her with chloral hydrate, almost killed her. He put mm-hmm. a bag over her head when they were having sex in order for her to pass out. And then he'd rape her. So awful, awful, brutal things. Um now, that's just, that's the woman that he, you know, the mother of his children. That's the woman that he didn't intend on killing and he never did. Right. What did he do to the women that he did kill? Right. And then take a look at the body's condition after they were found. So, uh, I would say pretty high in the brutality rate, especially also since there was rope involved. And the cruelty. There was a razor involved and drugs were involved. Um, at that scene when they found the rope tied to the tree where the limb had broken. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably gl- hunger. And- yeah, pill bottle, glass vial, a razor, and then they found stuff, Good you damn. know. So uh, pretty gosh darn brutal. Yeah. And 
we're doing cruelty as well. 4.25 mm-hmm. for cruelty. So exactly. Very cruel. Very cruel. A criminal mind, very low. Uh, m- 1.75. Massive, massive idiot. Is what you gave him. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel, do you still feel that way? I do. Yeah. I do. I mean, he never covered any of his tracks. Mm-mm. He, he just winged it all the time. He left so much evidence behind. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get his story straight. The story stuff was pretty sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, he left the clothes in the closet and the, with the room that he stayed in. Right. The bloody clothes. The he didn't car. even throw them away. They gave me the car. They gave me the car for well, drugs. Then, I traded then, it for drugs. Right. And then they, they sold me the car, but I didn't pay for it. Well, actually, it was an abortion. Yeah. Yep. Jakes. Dumb. Uh, and then now we've got depravity, 4.5. Uh, he got a pretty high depravity rate because of the condition of the bodies. Yeah. When you I do mean, stuff after the bodies, that's depravity. That is absolutely disgusting. The fact that he... It, it looked like... Uh, either an autopsy or taxidermy type situation. Yeah, like he was messing mm-hmm. around looking at stuff. Like a Cut him all the way. Then stuffing things in the cavity after he took the organs. Just yeah. He filled her chest cavity with her own underwear. 4.5. That's 5. depraved. That's up there with some of the worst we've yep. ever seen. And then the actual amount of murders was four. Mm-hmm. And uh, we give kind of a number for that just to give ourselves like a, a danger meter, right? That's mm-hmm. what this is. Uh, so four would be a 1.5 on our scale. Right. Unfortunately, the people go very high. But anyway, we give him a 3.25. Mm-hmm. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, but we, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah, he's not very high. He's not very low. He's right in the middle of all the serial killers that we've talked about so far. Yeah. But what a fucking terrible monster Ugh. when it right. came to the people that he did kill. Well, he's another uh, individual that um, is kind of obscure. He's done some horrific things, but somewhat uh, obscure. And yeah. I, I really didn't know a lot about him. And as I was kind of digging, I came across this this name and, and this case and was like, well, this, I didn't know much about it. So let's dig and let's find out. And the DA thing was just nuts. Yeah, that, I, I'm blown away. It's like a movie character. Where right. Like, that's too overboard. That's, it's like, that what doesn't the even hell? make sense. Why are you lying to the public like that? But, you know, <clears throat> more and more we find that in how human so beings. So dumb. Some people do that. Well, shit, this guy was a dark one, really mm-hmm. a dark one. Hopefully the friendly friends were in there a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I know I called for them. Hopefully they showed. I don't know. There's there's some weird shit in there that they're like, no, nah, but I know. <laughs> Scared the friendly friends when it came to portions. Yes. Well, thank you for another great researched uh, thing into You're a welcome. person I've never heard of, and I kind of wish I never did hear about him, but now I that know. I do, you know, I know a little <laughs> bit more about the, the shitty parts that humans can uh, yeah. summon. Yeah. Inside them. Well, thank you for listening. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a weird ride. Yes. So thank you to our trusted turd triad, mm-hmm. our friends in the Facebook community and the Discord community. That's Don the Shipbox Wizard, Chris the Discord Dookie Slayer, of course Bodie. Our uh, here in the dipshit world, he's our quartermaster. Yes. And he's got some research coming up. Mm-hmm. Also, thanks to the Godhead and to the Garbage Disposal. Yeah. You can get a hold of us at info at scatcast mm-hmm. You can find dipshit merch. Yep. Dipshit Files merch at info at scatcast.com or at scatcast.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do this every week, but I'm I like, know. I don't know. Well, you know, you, it's, it's they like. They could probably do it better than I can at it's, this point. It's like traveling down a road over and over and over again. You get into this weird headspace. I'm looking at the tree. And then like three three years of doing this, all of a sudden you look up and you're like, wait a minute, where am I? Am I am I on the right road? Why does nothing look familiar? <laughs> ba, 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 ba. <laughs> all right, last thing, patreon.com forward slash scatcast. That mm-hmm. makes us do cartwheels and whatnot. Yes. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next Wednesday for more dipshit files. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to be looking into but it'll be something it'll be a surprise it won't be as dark maybe no we're i'm gonna be i'm gonna be padding these dark episodes with some 
fun Some stuff. light? Yes, a little bit of light. A little bit of light, I doubt it. She's going to bring us dark shit. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. First mammal, you continually attack my face. I don't respect the binger. It's not that I don't respect it, I just think it tastes like burned ass. Bing bong. Squeak.